0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind as we start a brand new week here in Georgia. Uh, Great panel with us today. Uh, We're going to start with uh, Jim Galloway, who is, of course, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper, and he oversees the um, uh, HAC.com Political Insider blog. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. Good, good. Did you have a good weekend? Uh, I did. Even got to play in the basement a little bit. There you go. People need to know that Jim Galloway, following in the footsteps of a a grandfather who was an acclaimed carver, woodworker, uh, Galloway does the same thing in his spare time. All right. You got to bring your work in sometime. We'll put it on camera. Sure. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We're also joined today by Dr. Amy Steigerwald. Uh, She, of course, is a political science professor at Georgia State University and... I am pleased to say, uh, is now uh, a member of the A-team, the <laughs> team of political scientists who are all coming in on the days after every big election. Uh, you'll be here next Monday with Alan Abramowitz, Andre Gillespie, and Audrey Haynes. I how did you find four of us that all have I, names to start with A? It just eggs. worked out That is delightful. And you have visitors today. It's a day off in school. Who's with you?
0: It is. So, my husband, Greg, and my son, Gavin, who goes to Springdale Park in third grade, is here.
1: Wonderful. We're glad they're there.
0: Hoping that he gets to control my voice and make it do funny things. We're glad
1: glad to have your uh, family here to watch the show today. Thanks for letting them. Uh, Right next to you, Brian Robinson. He, of course, used to work in state government. Before that, we we sometimes forget to point out that you worked on the Hill for Lynn Westmoreland when he was a member of Congress. Then you worked for Nathan Deal as his communications director in his first term. And now you have your own uh, communications and consulting firm called robinson, robinson republic. republic
2: yes all right welcome brian. all your public affairs communications and public relations
1: needs <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you uh and representative scott holcomb uh is back with us we're really glad to have you here scott brian is especially glad Absolutely. because he lives in brookhaven and that's part of your district he does brian and i are good friends yep. and it's great to be here this morning yeah does he complain to you about problems in Brookhaven? Constantly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get started. Jim Galloway, uh, it's interesting. Late last week, we talked about a poll that WSB-TV released that um, Mark Roundtree at Landmark Communications did for WSB. Mark will be here, by the way, on our Wednesday show to talk about it. But it was interesting. That poll Uh, What showed different outcomes, different results in terms of order of finish in Georgia, it had uh, Biden way out front, 31 percent of the vote. Sanders and Bloomberg way back at 14 percent. But the reason I mention it now, Jim, is that we've now looked at the fundraising figures for Democratic presidential candidates in the last quarter of 2019, and they're quite different. Uh, if that's an indication of how popular the candidates are, Pete Buttigieg uh, raised $800,000, Joe Biden 680, Bernie Sanders 500, Elizabeth Warren 350, and uh, Klobuchar about $260,000. What what should we make, Jim, of fundraising totals as opposed to polling numbers?
3: Well, first of all, you you note that you note that uh, Atlanta's reputation as a political ATM has survived yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean and 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 we're we're still that but i think you know especially in the case of of buddha look atlanta has got a a a thriving lgbt community and and i would surmise that a good bit of bit of the money is 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 coming out of out, out of there uh but also i mean but but uh, as you pointed out biden's doing very well here mm-hmm. uh and 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 of and of course, I mean, I'm sure if you look uh, look back at 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton did very much the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it we've got we've got a reputation of people uh, uh, for for people who open their their wallets.
1: You know, Jim, I'm glad you just talked about our being an ATM because here's why, Amy. In the past elections, that was sort of a derogatory uh, way of framing Georgia because candidates would come here and raise money, but they wouldn't compete in Georgia actively. This year it appears we're heading in a different direction.
0: No, I think that's very true. I mean, if I was on the Republican side, I would be concerned with the numbers coming out. I mean, it shows Georgia being in play. Um, it shows the two Senate seats being in play and particularly a number of the congressional districts that are right around uh, the city of Atlanta being in play, both at the federal um, as well as the state house level. And so I think that there, that puts it in, which is another reason why I think we're seeing those numbers being so high, even relatively early in the cycle, because people want to have a say in who the candidate's going to be. And who they think is going to run best in uh, November?
1: So I, we happen to have in the studio today, and it is coincidental, somebody who I think probably has something to do with the money that Buttigieg has raised here. Uh, Representative Hokum, Scott Hokum, you're a you're a Buttigieg supporter. You've held at least one event for him here in Georgia. Um, talk about that a little.
4: We've found a lot of enthusiasm for Pete in in the state. Uh, we hosted a fundraiser last year and. Uh, brought in well over $100,000. It was far greater than our expectations were. We're hosting another event for him in a few weeks here in Atlanta. He'll be uh, in town. And I think Pete has definite momentum coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think you're only going to see those numbers go up. So
1: do you happen to know, uh, and you may not, if, if, say, some of the people who are contributing to his campaign came to the fundraiser for the $100,000 that you raised, Are they hedging their bets or are they 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 also writing checks to others or do these feel like unique contributions because they support Pete Buttigieg? I think at the beginning of last year, there were some that were hedging, but the vast, vast
4: majority were definitely solid Pete supporters. And now we're seeing just our supporters really um, solidify and they're committed to Pete being successful.
1: Brian, I think, in fact, I've heard you say it. You said it before the show started today. You said it before. uh, This is gonna be, as is South Carolina and Nevada, perhaps more challenging states for Buttigieg.
2: That's true. And look, he's the kind of candidate that really can excite this white intelligentsia voting class. The problem is the white intelligentsia voting class in the Democratic Party isn't, isn't a majority. Now, they're wealthy. And so you're going to see some a boost in his fundraising numbers there. We're not seeing any polling whatsoever yet, Pete, getting any traction with Latino or African-American voters. Latinos will play a major role in Nevada and African-Americans will be the distinct, sizable majority of the South Carolina Democratic primary. So if he can make a showing there, and I would say this is true for Klobuchar as well you're going to start seeing the rocket boosters go up on one of those two. Mm-hmm. There's no way there can be rocket boosters on both, as you're seeing right now coming out of New Hampshire. They're both trying to occupy the same lane, even though they have different profiles, you know, as people and as candidates. So we're going to know a lot more after uh, these next two contests about who's going to be standing. And, of course, can Pete and Klobuchar stand up to the mountain of cash that Bloomberg is pu- putting into this yeah. to this race? And, uh, and and he's beginning to rise in the polls. And what you're beginning to see, AJC covered this this weekend, Jim, is Bloomberg beginning to build numbers with African-Americans. That is a key thing to watch.
3: Jim? Yeah, it was, uh, what I find interesting in the, in this contest more so than any other that I've that I've I've uh, followed is that you've got okay, uh, the campaign contributions have two purposes. Number one, they obviously they pay for everything, but they also they're also a a, a they're, they're a commitment uh, from the voter to the candidate, and that's why that's why uh, people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have really have really dialed into the the small dollar. Uh, campaign but what we have in 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 the Michael Bloomberg campaign is is, is a campaign where no financial investment is even necessary yeah and, and and it's it's kind of and it's kind of interesting when I was talking to Howard Franklin his his uh, his senior advisor here in Georgia he says it's actually it's it's kind of un, unusual because you know you're picking up the phone and you're asking for support and the natural f- next question is how much money do I have to raise? And you, you get to tell them not, the not a not none. a penny.
1: Yeah, um, Scott. I l- let's keep talking about Buttigieg for another moment or two here because um, Jim pointed out the uh, LGBTQ community here is you know probably it, it, and you will confirm this or not. I assume you know uh, involved with him. They want to see him do well. Uh, in the last uh, few days, we had Rush Limbaugh, the. Uh, President Trump's uh, Medal of Freedom Award honoree at the State of the Union address make a disparaging remark about Buttigieg on his national radio show because uh, Buttigieg is gay, uh, uh, making fun of the fact that Buttigieg kissed his husband on a debate stage. Um, Homophobia exists. And, you know, balancing the homophobia against this really engaged LGBT community here politically engaged is an interesting thing to watch play out, I think. It it is. And and Pete definitely has
4: a lot of support among the uh, LGBTQ community. However, he's not just that, he's so much more as a candidate. And his campaign is really trying to bring a generational voice to the issues that we face. Um, your listeners can't see it, but I rolled my eyes when you talked about Rush Limbaugh <laughs> receiving that award. They can't award. see our own camera, uh, Scott. Oh, <laughs> we're on camera. <laughs> uh, you. Um, Facebook Live, will see that, there you Scott. Go. Yes. Um, but I, I thought Pete gave a very good response to that, too, because he said that he's not going to be lectured on family values by the likes of yeah, Rush Limbaugh, yeah, and, and he's, he's right about that.
1: Amy, I wasn't trying to suggest that Buttigieg is running as the gay candidate for president mm-hmm. because one of the things that's uh, fascinating about him is he's most specifically not doing that it's amazing how rarely that's come up in terms of how he uh, how he uh, came won more delegates in iowa uh, was near the top in in new hampshire as well um, but he has handled it with great aplomb. And uh, with great dignity. And he's refused to get engaged. His, he didn't respond to Rush Limbaugh in any way, really. He, um, he said, I've dealt with this my whole life. I grew up gay in Indiana. I know what uh, bullies are like.
0: Yes, it was an excellent response. And I think it sort of shows more broadly that we all have multiple identities that we come with. And we just they're just there, right? It doesn't change anything, right? This is, um, you know, he is, in fact, gay just like the women on the stage are women, and the men are men, and those who, uh, well, there aren't any people left of color, well, except Tulsi Gilbert uh, is the one you know left of color, but the, the racial identities, right? I mean, they just are. And I think that that's maybe one of the most fascinating issues here is how one navigates that, because some people will only see, right, that someone is a woman or a man, or that they are gay or straight. And even if that's not something that you are necessarily talking about constantly, it is sort of their surrounding. And I think that goes to us as voters about what are the things that we're looking at? Mm -hmm. How are we making those judgments? How are they affecting our ability to hear what people are actually saying and the policies they're putting out? And how much are we instead relying on those somewhat superficial determinations of what the person uh, is and brings to the table?
1: Brian, uh, it's interesting that Amy talks about uh, the fact that we don't really have people of color left in the race. Uh, But when you look at the numbers, fundraising numbers in the last quarter, uh, Kamala Harris actually raised $450,000 before dropping out Mm -hmm. of the race. Um, And there are people... That was in Georgia. In Georgia. Georgia, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. All these numbers are specifically for Georgia. And, you know, there are people right now who are saying that maybe Cory Booker and Kamala Harris made mistakes in dropping out when they did because this field isn't narrowing. There's no winnowing of this field so far. No, and I kept saying during the
2: fall that Booker and Harris both had a chance to get those rocket boosters I just mentioned in South Carolina. We saw this play out in 2008, right? Hillary Clinton in the early early polling had a huge lead in South Carolina because Bill Clinton was very popular with African Americans. John Lewis endorsed Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And then what happened? This African American candidate who was a a uh, who was impl- who was charismatic, I don't want to use Joe Biden's racist terms, he was a charismatic <laughs> and uh, effective politician and the African-American vote switched over to him.
1: They could have he had He won Iowa, happen. and that mm-hmm. was the turning point for, for uh, yeah. John I Lewis. I think the
0: difference, though, maybe, yes. is to compare. I mean, one of the things is there were more, there's more people in the race right now, right, who they're competing with. Um, and I think also that it's – what I have been most struck by with polls that are coming out is not the polls of who it is that people support, but rather the poll results about – people's perception of who other people will support and who they will vote for, right? The number of women who say... People just won't vote for a woman candidate. Mm -hmm. And so I'm afraid to support Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris, those that say um, the last race was a sort of backlash to having Barack Obama be the first African-American president. And so I'm concerned that if I support Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Andrew Yang, right, someone of color, Julian Castro, um, that that is going to come back. Right. This elect. There's a lot of focus on electability, even though what that really is, is perceptions of what other people. People will do, and it's really sort of showing that a lot of people in the country are very concerned about what others will do and their unwillingness to support someone who, to be perfectly blunt, is not a white male.
1: Scott, I don't want to uh, 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 make this whole conversation about Pete Buttigieg, but since you are here, I think there's some questions that I'd, I'd love to, to uh, hear your, you talk about. You've got a fundraising lead in terms of Georgia money here. Uh, what kind of I, have, I know nothing about the infrastructure. Uh, that Buttigieg is building in the state. To the best of my knowledge, there's no staff here yet, although I certainly could be wrong about that. But what about efforts to raise volunteer armies and to be out there canvassing? Where does that stand? Um, they are
4: phasing it in a way that I think is appropriate. So right now they are reaching out to Georgia supporters to go to South Carolina. And they're, right. they're keeping their focus on the short-term targets. Right. They're not ready
1: for Georgia, in other
4: words. But they are building up their support. And I didn't say it, but I think it's important to share uh, why I am supporting P.U. I have known him for over a decade. Uh, we have Since had he was
2: 13. Long.
4: Since Pete was 13. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Please continue. <laughs> and we've both been involved in issues of national security. We've both been involved in trying to come up with ideas to promote economic growth. And Pete is an extremely talented leader. And, and there are a number of us across the country, mayors and sub-national level leaders who know him personally. And we're supporting him because we know the type of person that he yeah. is. And, I- and I'm excited about it.
1: Uh, Jim, I, I was down at CNN yesterday afternoon to talk about the, uh, the U.S. Senate race, the, the second race, number two. And I was told when I walked in the door that uh, Mayor Bottoms had just been there earlier to promote Joe Biden's uh, uh, candidacy. Also, by the way, to talk about the sanctuary cities and Trump's threat to start sending immigration teams into sanctuary cities But uh, Biden has done pretty well in fundraising here. He still has uh, the mayor and any number of supporters. Calvin Smyre, probably one of the most respected African-American leaders in the legislature and beyond, and others. Their chips are still all in on Biden, but they're going to be watching Nevada and South Carolina very closely, aren't they?
3: Right, right, uh, and uh, there's Billy Mitchell too. He's a state yep. rep out of out of Stone Mountain, but he's also the incoming president of the uh, National Association of Black Legislators, mm-hmm. which is a which is a huge umbrella group. Uh, yeah, th- th- they are they are fully committed to Biden, but but th- and and they claim they're not nervous, uh, but you can't help it, but think that they they probably are. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, finishing fifth, fifth mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, uh, that was that was pretty disappointing yeah, I for, mean, for, yeah, for Biden fans.
1: Yeah, they've got to be. I mean, for that matter, Brian, you know, Nevada's a challenge. That's by the way, everybody should know if they don't. It, it, their caucuses are this Saturday and they've already had 18,000 early voters uh, show up to cast ballots. I don't even want to think about how complicated that sounds that you integrate early voters with caucus goers. Um, and we'll talk in a little while about some people suggesting that Nevada could be a mess almost as bad as Iowa. But in the meantime, uh, in South Carolina, Tom Styers is polling in most most polls second uh, behind Biden. So that's not a good sign for Joe Biden. <laughs> if you've got a guy who's who's buying his way in with millions and millions of dollars and Biden can't effectively knock him out.
2: Yeah, there aren't many good signs for Biden, period. A second place finish in South Carolina is the end of his campaign. He's got to win there. And in fact, he needs to win fairly convincingly. So if there is a surge by Styer or by one of the other uh, candidates in the, the center lane, look, this is, South Carolina is actually not a good place for the leftist candidates. Uh, the African-American vote, as I said earlier, is the majority there. And, of course, African-Americans today, in today's context, are amongst the most moderate members of the Democratic coalition, and they've got a, a pretty strong voting record. And if you look back to 2016, Hillary Clinton did very well in South states, including in Georgia, where she trounced Bernie Sanders at a time when he was pulling off upset victories in the, in the upper Midwest. So I think this is a chance for the center-right, I'm sorry, the center-left candidates in the Democratic primary to make their move. If they don't, they're done. This is it. This month is it.
1: Um, Amy, let's talk just for a moment before we take a break about what's happening in Nevada right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, early voting has begun, And uh, the uh, Las Vegas uh, Review Journal's latest polling shows Bernie Sanders at 25 percent, Biden at 18 percent, Warren at 13 percent, Stiers, Buttigieg and Klobuchar all packed together at around 10, 11 percent. But part of those numbers show a precipitous drop off. Uh, by Joe Biden, who was well over 30 plus percent in August and started dropping in the fall, went up a little bit and is back down in February.
0: I think there's a lot of things. Right. As time plays out and we start to see, number one, there are right people at the very beginning. Right. What name did you know? You knew Biden. I mean, he was eight years of the vice president. He has been around in Democratic politics for a very long time, having been senator and also holding state level positions. Um, and people started to learn about the other candidates, which I think is some of it. It's always also that. I mean, if you look even um, at the last election, new is exciting. Mm-hmm. People want to find out about the new candidate, the new bright thing, and that a lot of times gets the attention. Um, what is, of course, also interesting is the degree to which we're sort of leaving out some of the candidates even in the discussion. I think probably a lot of people don't know that the person in third right now in the country still, when it comes to number of delegates, is Elizabeth Warren. Yep. Yet, she's being left out of the discussion, right? Klobuchar is not getting the same sort of discussion. Um, we're we're also, not taking seriously, for example, Steyer, who is polling incredibly high, even though uh, he's not, right? He sort of, you know, got ignored in the last debate. People are not really paying him a lot of attention. But well, he, he's only going got up the poll- he
1: got like 2% of the vote in New Hampshire. How much attention can you give a guy like that except for the South Carolina poll Well, except that if of- all of a
0: sudden you look at South Carolina and yeah, you look at right. some of the later for Super Tuesdays all of a sudden. And same thing with Bloomberg, right? I mean, Bloomberg hasn't even shown up on the debate stage yet and his numbers are incredibly high. And so I think it really does show the degree to which it's very much an open race and people are still trying to figure it out. Um, I think the other thing that's really interesting, especially as we look at um, a caucus state, is that, remember, in a caucus state, you vote, and then there is this very, well, you don't vote, you you go into groups, and then there's this very public renegotiation if a group for a candidate doesn't reach whatever the delegate threshold is of what group they want to then go join. And so I think some of what's also interesting is who's the second choice, Right. And where does that come in? And that's where I think it's really interesting, because for a lot of people, the second choice is actually either Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar.
1: Scott, uh, before we take a break, we shouldn't neglect to mention that Donald Trump's fundraising numbers in Georgia were two point five million dollars. He continues to be a formidable presence in Georgia. And if this state is in play, uh, there's going to be have to be a lot of energy around beating him here. You're exactly right. And I think that
4: there will be. Uh, Georgia has the two Senate races, and I think we're going to have a lot of money spent here. So political consultants will have a pretty good 2020. Brian Robinson, (laughs) cheers for that. All
1: right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit. Here's a, a, a new bulletin for you. Senate race number one in Georgia, which hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention. We'll give it some in just a moment. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Scott Holcomb, Amy Steigerwald, Brian Robinson with us for today's show. Jim, uh, let's take a look. Uh, Actually, before we go, as long as we've been talking presidential, we're going to talk about Senate race number one in a minute. But uh, you uh, wrote a piece and you have uh, more. You wrote a piece yesterday's paper and then you have more in the Joel today about Georgia endorsements for Michael Bloomberg who we talked about a minute ago we know that Lucy Mcbath has already aligned herself with him and then state Senator Jen Jordan uh, announced that she's supporting him. That's a big pickup I think for him considering she's kind of become a star in uh, Democratic Party politics uh, since the uh, abortion bill was debated last session. And then there's Michael Thurmond who is eager it seems ready to go. For Bloomberg, but hasn't quite gotten there yet. He talked to us about it on the show on Friday, but there's no question that Bloomberg is picking up some energy here, is there, Jim?
3: No, no, there's no, there's no question. Uh, and 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 I, I had a conversation with uh, with Senator Jordan yesterday, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's really interesting uh, the reason she she gave. Uh, number one. She is, is, she is quite uh, concerned that uh, Bernie Sanders might top the Democratic tippet, ticket, and, and she thinks that that could have just tremendous Im- uh, a, a negative impact on the down-ballot down races. Uh, uh, she is completely focused on the impact of the presidential campaign on, on the state capitol. Uh, And is particularly uh, in the in in the in the house uh, in the state house where Democrats are only what sixteen votes uh, short of a a majority here there. Uh, She's also she's she also likes the 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 money the uh, obviously the money that's being pumped in Mm -hmm. Uh, the infrastructure that he is that Bloomberg is creating with his ads. uh, You know it's it's it's, uh, I hate to get Reaganesque about it, but you know a, a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, and that's that's kind of that's kind of her her view on it. D- does she does she worry about stop and frisk? Yeah, she worries about stop and frisk, but she also points to uh, the fact that, that Bloomberg. Has, has made gun violence a, 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 a movement. And that really that really uh, uh, penetrates uh, suburban Atlanta.
1: Yeah, you know, Scott, that's an important thing to say. I mean, there are these weird contradictions in Bloomberg that I think we're going to watch to see how they play out in, in the long run. But do you agree with uh, what Galloway says about Jen Jordan's assessment, that if Bernie Sanders ends up as the nominee, it's going to hurt all the way down to legislative races in this state?
4: I think that there's probably some truth to that, or at least there's a concern about that. Um, Outside of the metro area in particular, uh, I don't think that that's Bernie country. And even within the metro area, um, he's not. My top choice. Uh, I know some people who are very, very passionate about him, and I understand that. But he's—he's he's not my top choice.
1: I want to Amy and, and Brian. I want to get you in on this. Um, I was reading over the weekend, and, and I'm sorry that I don't have the data with me right now. But but, but you're a you're, you're a data nut, uh, Amy Steigerwald. Uh, I'm a nerd. Bernie yes. Bernie's uh, case for why he can be an effective uh, opponent of Donald Trump—the way he can win—is expanding the electorate. Mm-hmm bringing in people who don't normally vote. But there's been some analysis done in the last couple of weeks that suggests that's just plain wrong, that it is not a matter of expanding the base, it's turning out your current voters and getting them to the, to the polls, which makes the Sanders argument, if, the, if these organizations, color of, I, I'll, I'll look at the organizations in a minute, mm-hmm. the data they've been putting out, it, it makes Sanders' case really flawed. I, there is
0: i mean so on the one hand it turns out that the numbers in Iowa that there was greater turnout than we saw in 2008 so that or 2012 so that is in fact Uh, Really positive, right? So we saw a lot of turnout. What we didn't see, though, which people were expecting, particularly if, for example, Bernie's argument was uh, sort of hitting this new base, was that we would see higher turnout in uh, particular areas, especially those that were closer to the universities. And that wasn't really where it was. And it also seemed that coming out of those areas, uh, the vote was kind of split as to who people were voting for. Uh, There was, in fact, right, a contingent that was going for sort of Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren. But there was a pretty strong contingent contingent in those areas who were also going for Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. And so it does seem that that argument, at least so far in the states that we've seen, which... remember are not terribly diverse, uh, at least Hmm. if we go sort of demographically, um, and also are much smaller. We're not seeing that, but what we are seeing are at least our heightened turnout numbers across the board, which is potentially positive no matter who the nominee is come November. The
1: uh, organizations that I was reading this weekend, just to name them Democracy and Color and States of Change, and you all can go look at what they've been researching, but Brian, you were nodding when I said that. There is something a little bit flawed perhaps, when you do go back and look at 2016, 2012, about Bernie Sanders' argument.
2: Well, you know, Amy mentioned 2012's uh, prior, uh, caucuses in Iowa. in The caucus turnout this year was flat from 2016. So this idea that there's this groundswell support is not backed up. I don't think that we had a huge upsurge in voting in in New Hampshire. I don't know that we're expecting one in South Carolina. And if we do, it may be because Republicans don't have a primary and they will go in to try to sabotage the Democratic primary. And that's actually
0: a great comment because the number that Trump got in the Iowa caucus as uh, in relationship to what Obama got as an incumbent was way higher. So the turnout there was actually really high.
2: Shows the, the enthusiasm that the, the Trump base has there.
1: Uh, New Hampshire did have higher turnout, so we got to be careful about oh, that's, that. Okay, yeah, that's that's, all right. thanks
2: for for that, uh, That's fine.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah, no, no that's fine. Uh, Jim Galloway, let's turn to Senate race number one. Uh, you all published a piece this weekend, uh, talking primarily in this case about uh, Teresa Tomlinson and her efforts to recruit. Uh, African-American supporters to win the votes. She did a big event at Pascal's. She claimed that she could uh, take away Trump supporters in uh, parts of rural Georgia. Uh, But Sarah Riggs-Amico is also courting, well, I mean, all of them are courting African-American votes. But Sarah Riggs-Amico makes her case on the basis of the fact that unions have uh, been in her corner. How do you see in Senate race number one, uh, where Ossoff, Tomlinson, and Amico are doing in terms of courting African American votes,
3: uh, I think that's a that's a Senate race that desperately needs uh, uh, Raphael Warnock or Ed Tarver in in Senate race number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, well, just simply to offset that because you do have. I mean, you know, we 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 just got off the topic of enthusiasm, and and it's going to be it. Whether whether Georgia can flip blue, whether on a presidential level or on a Senate level, that's going to depend on on, on African American turnout. Yeah. And and look, we're we're headed for a, a, a somebody who's very pale at the top of the Democratic presidential ticket. Uh, we don't know who's <laughs> going to be the vice presidential ticket. T- uh, who's going to be the vice presidential running mate? Uh, but but you've got to give black voters something something personal to get out there and vote for. Scott, I wouldn't
4: double down on a strategy that's going to flip Trump voters if. I'm running a Democratic senatorial race. And, Absolutely. And, and I think that um, Jim is exactly right, that uh, if I think it's probably going to be Raphael Warnock who will be um, the candidate that, that most support will will get behind, and he will help whoever wins the, the other Senate race. But you have to build a broad
1: coalition,
4: and I think you should go after people that see the world the same way that you do. It's not terribly
1: complicated. How do you watch the... the, the, the um battle between Tomlinson, Miko, and Ossoff and how they're out there mobilizing voters. I find it uh, hard to assess right now where the, that race stands just in terms of mobilizing people to be out in the communities for. I them. agree completely. I
4: think there's a big question mark still hanging over it. And I don't think that the vast majority of voters have broken
1: one way or, the other, or another yet. Brian, is that good news for David Perdue? Or once a nominee is decided in Senate race number one, there will be a certain amount of unity around the Democratic candidate. Fundraising will pick up. I mean, right now, Purdue has such a massive $7.5 million in the bank, I think, and nobody comes even close. Uh, Asaf has a million plus. Uh, But will that change once the nominee is decided in May?
2: Yeah, and it may be decided actually in the summer during a runoff, Runoff. that they have multiple folks. Even then, they've got some time to mobilize and unify, and look, they will. But they're going to come out of that runoff financially exhausted, having spent millions of dollars to get the nomination. Purdue will not have gone through that process. He will not have been ripped apart on television for for two months by the time that we get into the general election. So he's going to have some built-in advantages, the least of which is not – that he is—his approval rating is plus 50. So that's where you want to be as an incumbent going into your re-election year. So he's in a really strong position. He will have a financial advantage. But—I keep saying but—I don't know how much the financial advantage matters because there will be so much money being poured into Georgia that it won't so much matter in individual Senate races. People are going to go to the polls in Georgia and in the other 49 states, to be exact— to vote for or against Donald Trump, yeah. and if they're for Trump, they're going to vote for they're going to vote for David Perdue, they're going to vote for D- Doug Collins or Kelly Leffler, and then they're going to vote Republican down the ticket. So that's going to drive what happens much more so than the financial advantage. I still want more money. I still want the ability to mobilize voters to put my message on the air to drive my positives up and to plant doubts about my opponent on air. Uh, and in digital ads, but I don't but it's like in the sixth district uh, congressional race back in 2017, that special election. Us off handle. Us off handle, mm-hmm. gobs of money spent. And at the end of the day, it was a tribal election. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had yeah. nothing to do with who spent the most money. Yeah.
0: So question for you, Brian, because I'm kind of curious on this. That so on some level, I sort of feel like Purdue just sort of stays quiet while we have the other Senate race playing out in many ways, like, so he sort of gets to sneak through. But the question is, in November, is there potentially, is is he in, does he have to worry about there being some sort of backlash between the inter-party fight, intra-party fight that's going on with Leffler and Collins, assuming that they both stay in all the
2: way through? That is the question of the moment, Amy, and I have a theory on it that is actually David Purdue was the net winner of all of this and maybe Donald Trump is too because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether you vote for Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins. you're voting for Purdue and, and Trump. Trump and if Trump I'm sorry if if Collins and Leffler are able to generate turnout for mm-hmm. their camps in that internet scene warfare then that's going to help the ticket up and up and down now granted the big fear Isn't how it affects the rest of the the Republicans. The big fear is that a Raphael Warnock becomes a consensus candidate, rises above Mm -hmm. the fray, is an attack because the Republicans are going after each other, and then somehow gets 50% plus one. That is the the, the giant fear. You see the Republican Senatorial Committee focusing on that message in its attacks on Doug Collins. Hey, hey
1: Jim, to expand on what uh, Brian just said, I hadn't given it a lot of thought, but it, it does strike me. That, given that the special election for U.S. Senate will be held on the same day as the general election, which will pit Purdue against one of the Democrats, uh, the Leffler Collins fight could, in fact, increase Republican turnout at the polls, which it in in fact would be good for David Purdue. I mean, that's just something that occurred to me a moment ago, and I might be totally wrong about it. But what's your take on that?
3: No, it'd it'd be good for Donald Trump as well. Well, sure,
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh,
3: it's... If I could uh, go back to what Brian was saying, I, I think this is uh, this is going to be uh, twenty twenty November twenty twenty is going to be the ultimate tribal election. Yeah. And and what I'm what you know, where Brian was saying that money doesn't matter. Well, it, it, and that's that's true on all sorts of levels. Uh, the economy doesn't appear to be really yeah. shaping shaping this race. Uh, I mean, we've got we've got an excellent economy, and and yet it's not. It's not it's not it's not penetrating into the electorate.
1: All right. Let me let me turn to Since uh, you all talked about it, let me turn to Senate race number two for a minute. And let me start uh, by let's go back in our time machine to President Trump in the East Room of the White House celebrating his pep rally after he was acquitted uh, of the impeachment charges against him. And he was recognizing all of the Republicans who were in the East Room there celebrating his acquittal. And here's one of the comments he made then.
2: A young woman who I didn't know at all, but she's been so supportive, and I've had great support from other people in that state, and she's been so supportive, and she's been downright nasty and mean about the unfairness to the president and Kelly Loeffler, I appreciate very much. Thank you. Great. She saw it very early on. A man who has been a, an unbelievable friend of mine and spokesman and somebody that, that I really like. And I know, Kelly, you're going to end up liking him a lot. Something's going to happen that's going to be very good. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. But Doug Collins, where is he? Where is Doug? <laughs> You have been so great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really amazing job.
1: Well, we can only hope, Jim Galloway, that for the Leffler people, that the president learns how to pronounce her name by the, <laughs> yeah. the next time yeah. that he comments about her. But Jim, let me start with you, and then give everybody a chance to weigh in on this. Uh, Doug Collins gave an interview to the Georgia Recorder, which an online uh, news magazine, and uh, he said. The most important thing he said based on that soundbite was Trump's going to stay out of this. I don't believe the president is going to get involved in this race at all. Collins also told Georgia Recorder that uh, he was sort of thought that all the attacks by the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and others who were going after him are kind of funny. Uh, I don't know that they're very funny, but it is interesting that Collins— Shows no sign that he's ready to accept some sort of deal from the president to go work in the administration.
3: No, and and uh, and you'd you'd have to uh, just given the the iffiness of this of this second uh, this re-election, uh, you'd have to you'd have to wonder why he might do that unless somebody uh, dangles a, a federal judgeship uh, in front of him. But uh, uh, a couple things. Uh, I, I, I read that read that Georgia Recorder article and my first thought was I don't know that I'd ever try to predict what Donald Trump is or isn't going to do. Yeah. Uh so that so that's kind of different. Uh oh also also don, uh, I'm not sure I'm not sh- look, I'm I'm almost sixty five, so so fifty, yes, is young to me, but I'm not sure that I would have described Kelly Luffler as a young lady. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's that that doesn't help her. That doesn't help her uh, 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 build any gravitas that she's going to need to win this. Brian, you're nodding.
2: Well, she's almost fifty years old, and I I think the long hair probably makes her look younger. And and of course, I mean, she's obviously um, doesn't look her age. Let's give her credit for that. But um, you know, to to Jim's point, uh, I I have said to both campaigns because I'm neutral in this. Doug's an old friend and many many dear friends are involved in Leffler's campaign that I'm staying out of it, not endorsing. But one thing that I do want to be able to do is to defend Leffler and Doug against what I think are unfair attacks from even from, from each other. That would be something I'd like to do over this next year. And I will tell you that the NRSC, the Republican Senatorial Committee which is run by Mitch McConnell's folks, Uh, them calling Doug a swamp monster is
1: (laughs) is rich
2: with irony. Because he
1: voted to raise the debt ceiling.
2: Along with everybody else on the delegation, <laughs> right. and and and, and attacking, you know, and then Clever both uh, of course, attacking him over voting for the farm bill, which yeah. Purdue and Isaacson voted for, and every other Republican. Sonny Purdue negotiated it, and Donald Trump signed it. Yeah. I mean, it's inane arguments. And look, if they attack Kelly on stuff like that, I'll defend her too.
1: Yeah, uh, Scott, it's, uh, it, it, let's go to the other side, and then we got to get to a break. Uh, with Raphael Warnock in, uh, Ed Tarver, uh, uh, Matt Lieberman. Are legislators or elected officials on the Democratic side like you, are you feeling any pressure to jump in and make an endorsement so that you can get a unified candidate or hope to get to a unity candidate? Have you done that yet? Um, I haven't.
4: Raphael Warnock has reached out to me, but we haven't connected, and um, I'll likely be supporting him. Uh, I think that he gives us the best chance to win in November. Stacey Abrams is very supportive of him and others, and she, of course, has an incredible network. And... I think that there probably will be a consensus around Raphael Warnock pretty shortly, though, if I had to guess. All
1: right. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. and When we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit about the fact the legislature is back in session tomorrow. And also let's talk about uh, Trump and the money he's taking for the wall and how it could impact Georgia's economy. You're listening to Political Rewind. Scott Holcomb, uh you are about to go back in session tomorrow. You've had, a, what, an eight-day recess, kind sort of a surprise break. Speaker Ralston, I think, got up in the well or, or got up in its chair in, in the Speaker's uh, position about a week or so ago and said, uh, if this feels like Friday to all of you, that's because it is. We're not going to be here for the next eight days to work on the budget. Are things that tense down there? Uh, There is
4: some tension, and and I will say it wasn't a break for those of us who are on the Appropriations Committee. We worked very, very hard, and there's a lot that needs to be resolved. Uh, the House budget is going to be different from what the governor put forward, but there there definitely is some tension between at least the House and the governor's office, and we'll see how the Senate views things as well. But we disagree with some of the fundamental recommendations that were put into um, the initial draft of the budget that we received.
1: Yeah, without being able to list all of them, I think it's safe to say that the House, Republican leaders as well as Democrats, think that too much money has been taken away in the Kemp budget from some vital services to the community. And you're concerned especially about one of your uh, biggest passions and issues down at the Capitol, right? That's right. And and that is, of course, to make
4: sure that in cases of sexual violence, we have the capacity to test uh, evidence quickly. And what we have right now is is a backlog. We have over 700 kits that are waiting to be tested And the capacity that we have is to test 100 to 110 per month. But we're receiving 200 per month, which means that every month we are going to have a bigger backlog. And that's unacceptable to me. And I think it's unacceptable to most members of the House. So we're going to work to try to fix that.
1: Brian, there was a certain irony last week when uh, there was a formal ceremony to unveil the new Nathan Deal uh, Justice Center. I was there. I figured you would have been. Uh, and, and Governor Kemp, uh, at least in some of his remarks, pointed out how proud the state should be of the reforms, the criminal justice reforms that Nathan Deal put in place, which we all know are, it, it have been, were remarkable and have become a model for many states around the country. But, of course, the irony is that to some extent there are cuts in the budget that roll back some of that. And that's part of what the legislature is now looking at saying we can't allow this to happen. Right. And I was
2: actually thrilled to hear Governor Kemp's remarks. I I thought that they were actually uh, beyond just that issue. I thought he struck all the right notes in honoring former Governor Deal. And I really appreciated that. I have also spoken out on the accountability courts issue. Now, granted, every Line in the budget has a defender and a constituency. The accountability courts. I am part of that constituency because I'm a deal person, right. That is part of the legacy that he leaves, and therefore is part one that I can take some. Uh, just you know, part of my staff legacy, I guess, because it's what he did. And I, the reason why I don't want to uh, cut back on what those courts are doing, and it's and it's drug courts, it's veterans courts, mental health courts, is they save tax dollars. We need to be robust in our spending on them because it's finding better solutions. I'm not, I'm not falling into talking points on this. That's what Kevin Riley always accuses me of here. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no, when, he, when he's on. With I this. will attest fact you have no notes yeah. in front of you. Right. <laughs> uh, that this is a good investment for taxpayers. It saves us millions and tens of millions of dollars. Let's stay on that path. I understand that means that we're going to have to cut somewhere else. That is also important. And. That's what I want to emphasize. Governor Kemp and the legislature don't have easy choices. They're not being evil. They are saying we've got this amount of money, we we got to divvy it up as fairly as possible. All of these things are priorities. Uh, but I will say as a constituent of the accountability Court, somebody
1: supports it, I hope that gets spared. So real quick, Scott, one of the things I think we have to point out here is to some extent the fighting going on over budget lines isn't unusual it happens between governors and 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 the legislature in every session. What exacerbated it this year was the surprise that Governor Campbell laid out. Ooh, the budget that you're working on right now, the so-called supplemental budget. Yes, four uh, percent cuts. No, you can't talk to agency heads. It isn't so much about the fact that you're going to wrestle back and forth over numbers as it is about how much voice you all have had as an appropriations committee, as a legislature in dealing with all this. Is that a fair statement?
4: It is a fair statement. And I think Jim Galloway's recent article covered as well that the OPM um, director, uh, his, his statements were ridiculous. He came and testified before appropriations and said that he was only going to talk about his budget when he's responsible for putting together the entire budget and then he later had a closed door session where he had a mea culpa but
1: uh, i think that things could have definitely been handled in a much better manner jim do you, do you don't you feel like in the long run th- that this is good for us to talk about there are some problems but that the speaker the, the house they're all going to come to terms with camp aren't they They'll, they'll come to terms uh, I, I, but the, the,
3: there's still uh, a, a, a few things hanging out there that that need to be resolved uh, one is that line that was in a September 5th memo uh, where where uh, 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 the the governor's legal counsel said that uh, uh, the the law uh, 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 it, it, I can't remember the phrase, but it, it, it indicates that that State Department heads don't need to give any facts or figures right. to, mm-hmm. uh, to, 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 to yeah. lawmakers except when they're in session.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's got to change. Uh, I can't imagine the legislature accepting that going forward. Uh, Amy, you get one last word because we're out of time. Uh, your interns down there, you're responsible for the internship program of the Capitol. They're getting quite a session down there. <laughs>
0: Indeed, they are, and I think you know, for some of their, I, I think some of them are kind of getting why this is so important, and I kept, in fact, I was down there last week and encouraged them, you know, go to the budget hearings, listen to what's going on as these things are being debated. And I think it's it's trying to figure out, like, where that comes in. I think what's also difficult in this instance is um, there is a little bit of a disconnect between the budget projections that are being put out as well as the statements about sort of the fiscal health of the state. Uh, those are more positive than the budget projections are, which is also, I think, fueling some of the tension as this is being worked out. But they're definitely getting a, a front row of looking at <laughs> how how do we prioritize different things around the state? Because, as Brian said, right, there's lots of things that are important. They all many times cost money. And how do we pick and choose between them as we try to figure out which one is most important? How
1: many interns do you have down there? Uh, I think we're at 52. Wow. OK, you got the last word today, which I'm Glad to give you, especially since we have your son and your husband. Oh, well, thank you. Watching the show in the control room. But anyhow, Amy Steigerwald, great to see you. See you next week with the A-Team when we assess what happened in Nevada next Monday. Brian Robinson, thank you. Scott Hokum, Jim Galloway, terrific to see you again. You'll be back on Friday's show, of course. Um, so, we're just about out of time uh, for today's political rewind, but uh, just want to remind you you can now hear us at 9 and 2, Monday through Friday. You can watch our TV show on GPB TV Friday nights at 7 o'clock. You can subscribe to our podcast. There is no escaping political rewind and no excuse not to find a way to be part of our show. Thanks for joining us today. See you again tomorrow.